Well, I, I've said this before. If you can uh, take your Bibles and keep in Luke 2, where my dude just read for us. One of my frustrations with Christmas is that many people, even people who would not consider themselves followers of Jesus, are somewhat familiar with the Christmas story. And so it feels like when you get up to speak about this, this is what I think you hear. Blah, 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 Jesus, Bethlehem was born, etc. And of course, we live in a culture where the, the, the story of Jesus is still sung about, and it's, there's movies about it, and it's mentioned all the time. And it seems to me that the culture and the real story of Christmas get mixed up. I think I've told uh, this congregation on a couple of times that one of these days I'm going to snap. I don't mind if a house has Santa Claus in front of it and Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Wren and all those big blow-up things. If you have that, now, if you have that in your yard, I'd like to talk to you personally. But I don't mind if people have that. And I also don't mind if people want to, you know, spend a lot of money and have a nativity scene in their front yard. But it's when both of those things are in the same front yard that gets me upset. And one Christmas Eve, I know I'm going to snap. Could be this one. I'm going to take a pellet gun. I'm going to get three or four senior high boys who don't want to go to college. (laughs) And I'm going to go around the Princeton area and I'm going to deflate all homes with the nativity set and Santa Claus in the same yard. But the reality is, I feel that we in this room, and those of you online who do follow Jesus, you also, we also have a tendency not to live out the reality of Christmas day by day, hour by hour. And so this morning, we have a very uh, simple task in some sense. What I want to, to do is to show you from the three biblical texts, I want to show you three indispensable foundations for Christmas. What real, really Christmas is all about. Three indispensable foundations. And then I want to ask all of us a question. Whether you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're here this morning and you're not exactly sure what to make of Jesus After we see the three foundations, I'm going to ask each of us, what are you going to do with Christmas? What are you going to do with Jesus? Let's look at the first indispensable foundation of Christmas. We pick that up in Luke 2, which was just read to us. And when you read these first seven verses, it's interesting. Luke seems to be simply recounting almost a secular history of the birth of Jesus. He mentions in verse 1 that uh, there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And then it talks about Quirinius, a governor of Syria, who uh, kind of fulfilled that registration in the area of Palestine. And then it mentions that Joseph also went up from Galilee, verse 4, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. What you see here is Caesar Augustus, 
ruling the Roman Empire at the time, a very powerful leader, one of the most powerful people in the world at that time. And Quirinius, not as much power, but a governor of Syria, uh, making uh, these uh, demands of people to be registered, probably having to do with taxation. And then we find out that Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because that's where his family, ultimately his family was from. He was of the house and lineage of David. He needed to go to Bethlehem where David was from, King David was from. And of course, what's interesting about that is you see the secular rulers uh, implementing their authority. And yet all of this is designed to get Mary and Joseph out of Nazareth where they were to travel 60 miles, again, Mary was very pregnant with Jesus, to get Mary and Joseph 60 miles away, which would have been very difficult to travel 60 miles at that point, to get them to go to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And then we're told quite simply, he was born and placed in a manger and had swaddling cloths. It's easy to miss this if you read it quickly. You see, while the powerful rulers are making their dictates to the people, you realize as Luke, and I think Luke wants us to see this, is that God is above and behind those powerful leaders dictating himself. You see, back in Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and plunged the world into sin and death and all of the effects of sin, when he pronounced judgment upon the serpent, on Satan who had deceived Adam and Eve, there was a promise made that one day a descendant of Adam and Eve would, would, would uh, mortally wound Satan, mortally wound evil, even though uh, this descendant would also be bruised in the heel by Satan. But it was a promise of a coming one that would come and rescue us from our sin and all of the effects of sin. In Genesis 49.10, we are told that uh, this ruler that was to come would be from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, God had, had promised Abraham in his, the beginning of his rescue effort, he promised Abraham that he would give him a son, but he would give him a people, which would be Israel, and that, the, that through this family, all families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 49.10 says it will be from Judah that this ruler will come to deliver us from our sin. In 2 Samuel 7, which we just read, it, 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 the, the, the scope of this promise is narrowed. It would be a descendant of David who would come. And then we're not going to turn here, but you should look at this. Micah 5.2, written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, specified that this ruler, this one that promised in Genesis 3.15, uh, promised to be of the line of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, promised to be of the house and lineage of David. But in 700 years before the, Jesus was born, Micah the prophet prophesied that this baby, this son of David, this uh, member of the tribe of Judah who would come and rescue the world, part of God's rescue effort to redeem the world, would be born in Bethlehem. And sure enough, Luke recounts, while Caesar Augustus is dictating, while Quirinius is dictating, 
God is behind all of this, sovereignly moving the pieces of the puzzle together to fulfill the promise of this coming Redeemer who would save us from our sin, would be born in Bethlehem, and that's exactly what happens. What Luke is trying to tell us in this first indispensable foundation of Christmas is that God is orchestrating the details of the universe in the birth of Jesus. I think it's very easy for us to move in one of two directions when we see the chaos of the world. And if you don't believe there's chaos in the world, just read the New York Times this morning. Read the first eight articles in, in, in the, online, uh, you know, the, 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 the online version there. It looks as, almost as if the world, nobody's in charge of the world. And of course, oftentimes what we do is while we, it seems like nobody's in charge of the world, we then try to control our world. And what Luke is telling us in the birth of Jesus, that there is a sovereign God who is orchestrating all of the details of the world. He is enacting his plan to rescue the world from its sin and death and all of the things that happen because of sin. And he orchestrated the details of the birth of Jesus perfectly so that this Jesus the fulfillment of the promise going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the promise that it would be from the tribe of Judah, the promise that it would be from the lineage of David, the promise that this, this baby would be born in Bethlehem, God orchestrates all of the details and makes it happen. That's the first indispensable foundation of Christmas. And the question for all of us, what are you gonna do with Christmas? What are you gonna do with the baby Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Now, there's a second indispensable foundation of Christmas, and that is this. This baby Jesus that we sing about and worship, that we see born in Luke 2, is not simply a baby. He's a king. So I need you to turn back to 2 Samuel 7, which we read earlier in our service, 2 Samuel 7, to see 2 Samuel 7. Just to give you a little bit of a backdrop of this great text, David is now the second king of Israel. He has unified the nation of Israel. This is God's people. The nation of Israel was part of God's rescue effort to the world. It was a nation that was supposed to be uh, follow the rule of God and show not only Israel, but the entire world, the reality of this God. David's in apparently in a very nice home as the king of Israel, of course, a house of cedar. The, the, the tabernacle, which is the place where the worship of God took place, all of that pointing to Jesus, actually, is in a tent. A tent that the Israel had used as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. As they came into the promised land, David has brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, and he wants to build a temple that he thinks is more worthy for this great God, not a tent. And he feels particularly, uh, I think, unsettled that he lives in a a great house and the house of God is only a tent. He tells the prophet Nathan of his plans. Nathan and David, without consulting God, say, sounds like a great idea. And then God appears to the prophet Nathan and says, no, David is not going to build this temple for me. I think... God also says, I'm, I'm comfort, quite comfortable in a tent because I, I move around, right? I'm not confined to one place. 
And because David had shed a lot of blood to unify the kingdom, David is not the one to build this temple. His son Solomon will do that. And then what God tells Nathan, and Nathan tells David, is that instead of David building a house for the Lord, God is going to build David and his descendants into a house, into a kingdom. And kings would come from, from David. And one day a king would, would come that would, 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 from David who would build an everlasting kingdom where the rule and reign of God would be restored on this earth. Notice what it says in verse 12 and 13 as Nathan describes what God says to David. Nathan's recounting this to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. In other words, what, what God is saying through Nathan to David is your kingdom cannot be, be altered by death. Even after your death, my promise to you and the descendants would continue so that this house that I'm building through your descendants will eventually become this place where God's rule on the earth is firmly and fully established. In verses 14, God through Nathan says this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. In other words, in spite of the fact that David's descendants, who would sit on that throne, would fall into sin. God says, I will discipline them. And so even sin cannot stop this dynasty that God is establishing through David and his descendants to build this kingdom. He then goes on in verses 15 and 16 to say this, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, this house of David that God is promising to David is a house and a kingdom that ultimately will last forever. Even time cannot bound this coming kingdom through one of David's descendants. And so what you see in 2 Samuel 7, and then as Luke describes that Joseph needed to get to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, in, in light of the promise in Micah 5.2 that this coming ruler would, would be, uh, this Davidic king would, would be born in Bethlehem, what we are being told here is that Jesus, this baby Jesus born placed in this manger is not simply a baby Jesus, it's not simply a great prophet, not simply a great teacher, he's the king. The king of the, the house of David. A king that will establish a kingdom that sin and, and death and, and, and even time cannot bound. When we look at the baby Jesus in that manger, we are seeing the promised Davidic king who will rule over the world and restore the rule and reign of God on this planet and in the universe. And certainly we see ultimately the ultimate expression of that kingdom will be when Jesus Christ returns and he will rule and reign over the universe, restoring the world, bringing peace, justice, truth, 
to the world. And where will he do this from? The city called the New Jerusalem. He's a king. Now, whether you have put your faith and confidence in Jesus or whether you're sort of considering Jesus or whether you're you know, actually not that interested in, in, in following Jesus, this forces a number of penetrating questions upon us. Those of you who have lived in the United States for more than 17 hours, you drink in the sort of the America, American, Americana you know, sort of perspective. We don't like kings. We got rid of one, King George III. In fact, most Americans, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Jesus is called a king. And I'm sure some of you, and in fact, a lot of, com- a lot of sort of uh, cultural commentators these days criticize Christianity because they say it's tyrannical. It, it imposes the Bible on people. But Jesus as a king is very different than all the other kings. Normally what a king does is he does take taxes from you. In New Jersey, we, it's the state motto. Whatever you make, send it to the government, right? We've got property taxes and sales taxes and income taxes. A king would also often send out the best and brightest of his kingdom to do what? To make war and to shed their blood so that the king and his kingdom would be spared. And sometimes it wasn't so much that the kingdom would be spared. Sometimes these wars that kings and presidents and prime ministers engage in are all about the political future and power preservation of that king, president, or prime minister. But we have a king who's very different. This is a king born in Bethlehem in that manger that will grow up, live the life we should have lived, die the death we, we, we deserved. And this king will lay down his life for his subjects. You never see a king like that. This is a king who will lay down his power, lay down his life for you, for me. That is not a king that you should fear in the sense of being in servile fear. That's not a king who's tyrannical. A crucified king coerces no one. A crucified king uh, tyrannizes no one. And yet our problem, even for those of us who follow Jesus, is we absolutely resist, in the heart of heart of hearts, we resist this king who, because he's a crucified king, has the right to guide us and to, to instruct us on how to live, and we will do anything but do that. How often do we treat Jesus like our personal coach? What Jesus is supposed to do for us is to help us in our career, help us in our academic life, help us in our romantic life. And so we treat Jesus as a coach. Some of us treat him like a celestial Santa Claus. I like the idea of Jesus as long as he gives me what I ask for when I ask for it. Some of us treat Jesus like a celestial 911 call. 
we try to solve our own problems in and of our own power and our own strength and our own wisdom. And only when all of that fails, then we start to pray. He's a king. He's a king, a crucified king. What will you do with Christmas? What will you do with Jesus? That's the second indispensable foundation. The baby Jesus is a king. There's a third foundational, indispensable foundation of Christmas. And that is this. The baby Jesus is God himself in the flesh. Go back to 2 Samuel 7, 14. Very profound. It's easy to miss this. In verse 14, God, through Nathan, is making these promises to David to build his house, to build his dynasty, to build his kingdom. And God says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. What God is saying is he builds this Davidic kingdom, this kingdom designed to restore the world under the authority of God. When you see this, it shows you that God is behind this Davidic dynasty. God is the one who will be intimately involved. In other words, the king, whatever descendant of David, certainly referring to Solomon, but then by extension all of the kings coming from David, is that God would be intimately involved with this king. In other words, the design was that the, 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 these kings, these sons, God would be a father to them and they would be a son to him. And of course it said he had to discipline them, certainly with Solomon and all the other Davidic kings he had to do that. What's fascinating is this father-son language given to David by Nathan the prophet from God is used in the New Testament to prove and to show that Jesus Christ, the baby Jesus, is not just a baby Jesus, he's God himself. I need you to turn one more passage to Hebrews chapter 1. In the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1. We need to look at the first five verses of the first chapter of Hebrews. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is speaking of Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus, the son, is presented as the heir of all things and the creator of the world. In verse 3 it goes on. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, this Jesus, this son, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is actually the one who upholds the universe. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, meaning Jesus Christ is the son of God, which means he is God. After making purifications for sins, his death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, and now the quote from 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
embedded in the prophecies given to David and his, uh, his sons and descendants who would be part of this kingdom that God was uh, preparing to restore the rule and reign of God on the earth. He's clearly demonstrating that you are my son today, I've begotten you. And then when he goes on to say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What this is referring to is that this Jesus, this baby Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Why? Because his father was of the, the lineage of David. He's the promised Davidic ruler who would come and, 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 and bring in the rule and reign of God. And from the rest of Hebrews 1, we see that what we are hearing what we are seeing is what the scriptures say, the baby Jesus is God himself in the flesh. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. I don't think many people would complain about the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to them, if we all did that tonight all over the world, would the world be a better place? I think so. Imagine what Washington, D.C. would look like if every politician, no matter what party they win, would love their political opponent and do good to them. Some of you would have a heart attack if you saw that. Nobody complains when Jesus says, forgive one another. Of course, your family Christmas would be a lot better if between now and the day everybody comes in to visit you, they got rid of their old bitternesses and hurts and forgave one another. Nobody complains when Jesus spends time with the marginalized. He spent time with prostitutes and tax collectors, people who are on the, on, the, on the fringes of society. What would a middle school lunchroom look like if every single middle schooler who came to lunch tomorrow was intentionally trying to spend time with those that are marginalized and ostracized and people who are disconnected from the rest of the student body? It would be a different lunchroom, I think. We all like that Jesus. The problem is, is that Jesus isn't just this. He claims to be God. Everything about the prophecies, what Luke says, he is the son of David, the promised ruler from the tribe of Judah who would come to usher in this kingdom, this rule and reign of God. And he is God himself. And that forces us all to ask a very, very important question. What are you going to do with Christmas? And what are you going to do with Jesus? Because I think a lot of us, even those of us who claim to follow Jesus, it's easy for us to treat this Jesus who is fully God as something less than God, if we're honest. Lots of people like Jesus' teaching. Lots of people like what Jesus did. But the rub is he himself claims to be Jesus. He said in the Gospels, I and my father are one. He said to a group of people, before Abraham was, which is 2,000 years before Jesus, I am. And they tried to stone him. Why? It was blasphemy because Jesus was claiming to be something more than a prophet, something more than a miracle worker. He was claiming to be God himself. And that creates an intellectual dilemma for every single one of us in this room and online. Because you can't really have it, at least in an intellectually honest way, both ways. You can't say, I like Jesus. Oh, he's great. But he said he was God. If he's not God, he's clearly either lost his mind or, 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 
or he's a megalomania, which is, is, was profound. It's greater than any other megalomania we've ever seen. On the other hand, if he truly is God, come in the flesh to die for you and me, how can we not, with joy and thanksgiving, throw everything we have to worship and serve this great God out of a heart of massive gratitude? I appreciate what N.T. Wright says about this. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? The fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham. It's nonsense. It's a bit of deceitful play acting. And then listen to what N.T. Wright says to all of us here. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. The baby Jesus is God himself in the flesh. What are you going to do with Christmas? What are you going to do with Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, everyone in this room struggles with living out the reality of Christmas. We forget that God is sovereign, and in fear we think the world is out of control, not realizing that God is orchestrating the entire universe and it will bring it to a rightful conclusion. Lord, some of us, we, we like the baby Jesus and all the sort of memories of Christmas, but we forget he's a king, a crucified king. He does not bring tyranny. He does not bring abuse. He does not bring coercion. He's a crucified king, and therefore we owe him our allegiance, our love, our everything we are should be bowed down before him. But he's not simply a king. He's God. He's God in the flesh. And everything he taught and everything he did and everything he said about himself is all put together. It cannot be separated legitimately. And yet, for probably many of us, we struggle to live out the reality of Christmas day by day, hour by hour. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit you would help us, those of us who claim to follow Jesus, that we would let Christmas dictate to us every moment of every life, that we would lay down our lives, not in servile, uh, trying to placate the, 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 the divine deity, but to lay our lives down for him in awesome awareness that this king and this God poured out his life for us. For those who have not made up their mind about Jesus, maybe seeking, I just pray that you would help them as they, they seek. I pray that they would talk to people and, 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 and really engage with what Jesus has done, what Jesus has taught, and what Jesus claimed about himself. That you would draw all of us to the worship of this king, this God, this Jesus, and live out the reality of Christmas. We pray this in your name. Amen.